Bibles with you, you want to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it all in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. All right. Thank you, John. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome to Gateway. If you're a guest, thanks for being here today, spending a little bit of time with us. What a beautiful day outside, huh? Anybody got plans for the day? Yeah. How about a nap later today? That sounds good too, doesn't it? God is good. Well, uh, thank you for being here on Easter Sunday. We've had some great services already and our Taze Valley campus and earlier this morning uh, at this campus and uh, so far I think it's been awesome. How'd you like that Easter choir? Weren't they great? <clears throat> we did that just for Easter, but I think we should do it more often. They were, they were good. Especially love the little, little ladies up here on the front row over there on the side. Love to see more of that. Yeah, uh, so hey, uh, <clears throat> there's no greater theme that we could talk about today. This is like Super Bowl Sunday for Christianity. This is like the 
the Daytona race. Uh, if you, if you, that's the lingo you speak. This is the big Sunday, and there's no bigger theme that we have than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a big deal. It's a big deal, and there's a, a lot of stuff that we could talk about because of that. It's the foundation on which everything we do here uh, at Gateway and in the church, every church, every Christian church, every church that follows Christ, it's the basis of everything we do. It is the, the hinge upon which the door of our hope swings. It's like Philip alluded to in the verse we read together, if we're believing in Jesus and it's not true, then we should be pitied more than anybody and everybody. Because if it's not true, uh, it's, it's all over for us. But we believe it is true, right? That's why we're here today. <clears throat> it is true. We're banking on it. You know, lots of other people have studied this kind of thing, and they, they have banked on it as well in their life. Guys like a man named Lee Strobel. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lee Strobel. But Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. He was an atheist who uh, was, he made it his job to get the finer details and have stories that people could rely on. People could count on the truth from Lee Strobel. Somewhere along the way of his career, he was a rising journalist at the, in Chicago. His wife becomes a Christian. She had friends who were Christians, and she was converted to Christianity. And uh, Lee was an atheist and was counting on his wife to remain an atheist with him. But in the, somewhere in the, along the way, she became a Christian, and it highly upset him. <clears throat> so he set out as an investigative journalist to disprove Christianity so that his wife would once and for all leave that religion and come back to the lifestyle they enjoyed. So he did a thorough investigation. He was one of the best. He talked to people from every field uh, that might have had an impact on Christianity, historically and present day. I mean, he talked to lots of people. And as you can guess, because I'm sharing his story this morning, and maybe you saw him on the news on Saturday night, he studied his way, he investigated his way, not further away from Christianity, but into the faith. And finally joined his wife uh, as a Christian. And so Lee, being the investigative and detailed analytical brain that he has, he began to write books. He, he's written a lot of books. One book that I would recommend to you if you're a new Christian or not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, it's a great read, is The Case for Christ. The Case for Christ. It's written from a journalist kind of viewpoint. But he's also written other cases. He wrote The Case for Faith, The Case for for a creator, the case for Christmas. Guess when that one sells? The case for the real Jesus. And most recently, you might have seen the movie here, uh, kind of a documentary movie, a week or two ago in theaters just for three, three or four nights, The Case for Heaven. He wrote The Case for Heaven. But he also wrote The Case for Easter. And in this book, The Case for Easter, he gives four proofs, four proofs that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now understand, these aren't all the proofs. There are lots of them. We don't have time today to go over all of them. But he gave four solid proofs. <clears throat> I'm going to share them with you real quickly in his book. First of all, he said Jesus really died. 
And you might say, well, duh, of course he really died. He lived, uh, you know, in the first century. So that's an important point. Most people, even people outside the Bible, can testify to the fact that Jesus really lived. The Roman historians, Jewish historians, we have, we have archaeolo- uh, archaeological findings, all sorts of things that prove that there was a Christ, a Christus in some of their writings, or a Jesus of Nazareth that really lived. Therefore, he really died. But not only did he die, he died by crucifixion. By crucifixion. Now, there's this view out there by some religions and some people that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of passed out. It's called the swoon theory. You know how when, uh, when a girl sees a, a good-looking guy and she kind of, oh, she kind of swoons? You watch old Elvis concerts or, you know, any of those old concerts, they swoon. And, the, and so they just kind of pass out. And you're like, what in the world is happening here? Nobody ever did that in one of my sermons, by the way. I want to tell you. They might have passed out, but they didn't swoon. That reminds me of the, uh, of the, uh, of the taxi driver and the, uh, and the preacher who both died on the same day and went to heaven. They both died, and St. Pete was there in heaven waiting on them like St. Pete does. You know, he's always at the gate. And these guys come up together, and he welcomes them in and says, come on, guys, we got, we got something for you. And they're, like, so happy to be there. And he, he takes them down the golden streets, and over to the left, there's this big mansion. It's huge. I mean, it's so big. It's got a bowling alley, a gymnasium, Olympic-sized pool. It's all electronic. It's just nice. And he takes him for a tour through this thing, and then he turns around and hands the keys to the taxi driver. Taxi driver says, wow, whoa. He says, thank you. I didn't expect this. This is awesome. This is incredible. He takes those keys and runs into the house. And then uh, the preacher's thinking to himself, wow, now if the taxi driver's getting that, just imagine what I'm going to get. I'm a preacher. And so they go down this way, and they cut through this, uh, this alleyway, and over here on the back, there's these little houses, and right down there on the corner, there's a shack, and St. Pete takes a preacher down there, and he says, uh, <clears throat> Here, here's your place. Had a little single bed, a little tiny bathroom, a dresser, and a black and white TV. Remember those? And uh, he turns and tosses the keys to the preacher. And the preacher said, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He said, you've got something confused here. You're mixed up. Now, I should have got the mansion. And the taxi driver should have come here. I mean, I'm a preacher. I preach the gospel. I went to church every Sunday. How can I get this and he gets that? He said, well, yeah, I know. Pete said, I know it doesn't sound right. I know it, it probably doesn't make sense to you. He said, but you got to understand. He's, he said, when you preached, people slept. But when the taxi driver drove, people prayed. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you not to swoon or sleep this morning in case that story's true, all right? <clears throat> but Strobel says people really, he really died. Jesus really died. He said there's no record of anyone ever surviving a Roman crucifixion. I mean, these people were masters of execution. They, they often executed people uh, and then sent their body parts to the four corners of the earth. So no one ever survived. He really died. That's, that's you know, that's a good proof for the resurrection. Because number two, uh, people saw him after the crucifixion. 
There were eyewitnesses who saw him alive. The Bible tells us that uh, the disciples saw him, that uh, 500 people saw him at one time. And here's a great proof. His brother James, you know, Jesus had several brothers. The Bible says in John chapter 7, verse 5, that his brothers did not believe in him. Now, this is important. <clears throat> James didn't believe in him. So for James to have written a book that's now in the New Testament, that appearance of the resurrected Jesus must have really made an impact on him. He went from a, an atheist, an unbeliever, to a guy who's writing a book that we get in the New Testament. That's the book of James. So people saw him. Now, one person might tell a lie and say, yeah, I saw him, and a group of 12 might propagate a lie for their cause to save face, but it's not likely 500 or 1,000 or what we see thousands of people in the first century propagating a lie, especially when the threat of, of death or dismemberment or imprisonment was at stake. No one dies for a lie. Thirdly, the first century church believed this. Now, I know you're thinking, well, wait a minute, why, is, why are these big proofs? Well, you gotta understand that if, if, the, if the Jesus legend was really just a legend, it would have taken decades, maybe even a century or two. You know, when you watch uh, Robin Hood on TV or, or the other day uh, we watched, uh, Jennifer insisted that we watch King Arthur. She loves those bloody fight movies, you know. Uh, so we watched King Arthur and, you know, there's a legend about King Arthur, a real man, and then this legend grows. But it takes centuries for that to happen. It takes a long time. But the belief as an, an institution the church had in Jesus was only years and some people say months after the resurrection. And they developed these things called creeds. Maybe you've been in a church where you've recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But there are, there are tons of creeds. And a creed is just a, the, that word comes from the Greek word credo, which means I believe. And it's just statements of belief. And they're so early that the Apostle Paul uses them in his writings. So they're in the New Testament. So these creeds verify the weight of the eyewitness testimony that came shortly after the resurrection when people saw Jesus alive. And you think about it, if Jesus had only swooned, if he had only passed out, what kind of shape would he be in if they saw him alive? I mean, he, 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 was, he was, again, the Romans did it right. They would put nails in the feet and in the hand, and they stabbed him in the side. He wouldn't be in any kind of condition to show up in the ways that they say he showed up in. He'd be a very sick, lame kind of man. But that's not how we see him. Lastly, the proof that Strobel gives is the tomb was empty. Tomb was empty. Now, I know you're saying, duh. Yeah, it was empty. And not only were the disciples saying it was empty and the women saying, we don't know where he's at, but the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers who were sent there to guard it said it was empty. In fact, when the soldiers came to the religious leaders, the religious leaders said, hey, wait a minute. They said, uh, we, this, we can't let this get out. We can't let this get out. So tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That should be on the screen behind me. Uh, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So you see what's happening there? They're like, oh, we, don't want, we don't want this story to get out. You tell them that they stole the body. 
So we believe that the resurrection really happened, but let me tell you, there have been lots of people throughout history who believe this, lots of people who've had to wrestle and deal with the issues of the resurrection. And I think the fact that you're here today, 2,000 plus years later, is a testament to the fact that the resurrection really happened. I mean, what are you doing here if it didn't? What is the church doing here? What are we doing in the world today? Well, we believe we're based not on a lie, but on the truth. Now, let me ask you a question. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Let me tell you what happened. You know, we're talking about Peter in this series. Peter was on the road to redemption because Peter is a man that we're really drawn to. We like Peter because he has his ups and his downs. He had his moments of greatness and his moments of folly and blunder. We've been looking at his life and how the life of Jesus impacted Peter's life. And you remember Peter for a lot of great things. You know, Peter walked on water. Remember that? Peter was courageous. Peter was the first who confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, uh, you know, was the first to speak up when, uh, you, you know, when things went down, when people came in. He was the first to answer the question. He, was, he, would, he would guard the security. You know, he was the security guard of the, of the group. He did so many great things. He was not only one of the disciples, he was in the inner circle. He was one of the big three Peter, James, and John. He was privy to things that the other disciples weren't. I don't know if you remember a scene called the Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah came down from heaven, spirit form, and met with Jesus. And only three men saw that, Peter, James, and John. The others didn't get to see that. Jesus let Peter in on a lot of good stuff. So when he denied Jesus three times in the courtyard, and we looked at that last week, it was a mistake, it was a blunder, it was a failure that would have been hard to come back from. I mean, you think about it. Peter was supposed to be the leader. He was supposed to be the one out front, and he was in a lot of ways, but here in the greatest moment of need, when Jesus, when Jesus needed them the most, they weren't there for him. And Peter went as far as to say, I don't know the man and may God strike me dead if I do. Bible says he denied him the third time with a curse. So he denied him three times. And what made it more humiliating for Peter, I think, was the fact that he had boasted in front of the other disciples, Lord, they may wimp out on you. They may throw the towel in. They may cave to the pressure, but I will never cave. I will never cave. I will die for you if need be. And what happened? Well, uh, he, he didn't. He did cave. He wimped out. Luke tells us in his gospel, and I love this, uh, the way Luke phrases this in Luke 23, 48. It says, in all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. That's an interesting word, isn't it? A spectacle. You know what a spectacle is? It's kind of like, <clears throat> oh, it's kind of like uh, when people watch professional wrestling. My wife's grandmother loved professional wrestling. Am I right? She loved it. And uh, what is it about professional wrestling that old ladies love to watch? It's a spectacle. I mean, you got these big guys in tight shorts with sweat dripping off them. They're throwing each other and they're bouncing around all over the place. It's a spectacle, isn't it? I mean, it's too ugly not to watch. 
That's what it is. I mean, you just got to watch it because you know something's about to happen. That's kind of like what was going on here, you know, and it's kind of like our culture. We like to watch things like that. I mean, we, 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 we'll watch a good fight in a hockey ring or on a football field. And that's, that's when we get excited, you know. It's like, oh, there's some blood there. There's some, they're fighting now. It's a spectacle. It's bad, but it's entertaining bad. It's a sign of our culture. I don't know if it's good. It's not new to us. The Romans did this in the first century for sport, and their executions were kind of like sport. And they did it right. It was a sight to see, and you would come by and say, wow, how did they do that? And he's still alive. He's still alive. It's a spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Now, I'm not sure if that means like, yeah, let's go see that. What a great game. Or if it's they're beating their breasts in sorrow. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. You know, before I could really understand what was going on, I, I asked the question, as, after I grew up and started thinking about the Bible and, and, uh, and things like this, I said, where was Peter? Where was Peter here? You know, the Gospels tell us that the women were there when Jesus was crucified. Women were there. They weren't afraid to be there. And the Gospels tell us that John was there. You know, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a close relationship. But where was Peter? He was supposed to be the courageous one. He was supposed to be fighting to the death. Where was he? Well, he wasn't there. I think he was some, in, in dark, some dark place, weeping bitterly. I think he was embarrassed. He was ashamed. I wonder if he had heard that Judas had committed suicide. I wonder if, I wonder if Peter had heard that about Judas. Yeah, you know, I know he heard what Jesus said when Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I wonder if Peter was thinking about maybe taking his own life. It's just speculation. You know, if Jesus is dead, what's the point? Uh, seriously, I, I don't say that in jest even. I'm saying if Jesus is not alive, what's the point of living? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And, uh, and that's where our hope comes from. I wonder what Peter was going through. Whatever it was, Sunday morning came. Sunday morning came. Peter was with John. The women come busting in. And the, the Bible says in Mark 16 that the the uh, angel told the women, don't be alarmed, you seek Jesus, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why did the angel say and Peter? Why didn't he say just go tell the disciples? I think all of heaven was in on this master strategic plan to make something out of Peter. Peter needs to be reinstated. He needs to be restored. He's crawling lower than a lizard's belly in grief and agony and regret and remorse. The angel said, make sure Peter's there. We got work for him to do. So Peter and John run to the tomb. John gets there first because he's younger. Peter finally gets there and he runs on in. John had stopped at the tomb and Peter saw the grave clothes. He didn't see a body. John came in and the Bible says when John came in, he immediately believed Jesus is alive. Just like he said, it's all coming together for me. But the Bible says that Peter went away kind of scratching his head. What, what, what's happening here? What's going on here? You know, I, I, th I don't think Peter was the smartest guy, but I, but I think he was the most zealous guy. Said, What's going on here? So what happens next is 
something that we don't know a whole lot about. We believe it happened, but we don't talk about it a whole lot in the church because we don't know a whole lot about it. But, but what, it, what seems to have happened is after the Jesus, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, we think that Peter also got a personal, private appearance from Jesus. Now, why do we say that? Well, because the Bible says, you know, when the two guys on the road to Emmaus came back that evening, they were a resurrection day evening, they came back and they told the disciples, hey, the Lord, we saw the Lord, he's alive. And they said in Luke 24, 34, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. In other words, yeah, we know, Peter told us, the women told us, Peter told us. So somehow Peter got a personal appearance from Jesus. I think Jesus met with him somewhere and, and, and you got him, got him going and said, you know, it's really me. I know you've dropped the ball there, but it's okay. I want you back on my team. I want you, I want you uh, to come through the portal, you know. I want you on the, this team because we, uh, we're going to win. And so Peter got this. You know, uh, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus appeared to the 500. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to James and he appeared to Cephas. So we have, this, we have this information in several places that Peter got this personal showing. And later that night, Peter met with all the disciples and he showed them his hands and his feet and his side, the wounds that were there. Which reminds me of the story when Moses and Jesus were out walking around. They came to this lake and, and uh, they didn't want to walk around. So Moses said, don't worry, Jesus, I got this. And he raised his hand and uh, his staff and the waters parted, and they began to walk across the dry ground of this lake. And Jesus wasn't going to be outdone, so he jumped up on the wave and starts walking on the water. But as he was walking, he began to sink a little bit. Started to sink he down to his knees, then to his waist, then to his chest. By the time he got to shore, he was up to his neck. And when he got out, he said, man, I don't know what happened. Moses said, oh, I know what happened. He said, have you tried that since you got those holes in your feet? Now, I know that's a little bit on the line, but I, I say that because of this. I think Jesus still has holes in his feet. I think his wounds are still there. Now, obviously, that wouldn't stop him from walking on water, but I think his wounds are still there because Revelation 4 says that John sees the lamb looking as if he had been slain, but standing. When you see Jesus in heaven, guess what? you're going to be able to see the wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet, a constant reminder of the price he paid for you and for me. So they get to Galilee, and what happens next? What happens next? One little girl was asked to describe Easter in one word, and she used the word surprise, surprise. Isn't that a great word to describe Easter. Surprise, devil. You didn't win. Surprise, enemies of Jesus. Your plot was foiled. Surprise, disciples. Jesus was telling the truth. He really is alive. But they went to Galilee, and then a couple things happened that I think might happen to you now that the resurrection is a true fact of history. Uh, I've tried to establish that not only did, was Peter convinced that the resurrection really happened, but I want, 
wants you to be convinced that the resurrection really happened. So the question is now, what happens next? What happens next? Now, I have three points, but in the, uh, in the uh, interest of time, I'm only going to do the one and three, all right? You good for that? And here's the first thing. We, we may be tempted to go back to our old way of life. You may be tempted to go back. Hey, the resurrection's true, but what, what's that got to do with me? I can live the way I want to live and show up once a week or once a month or once a year and give a little credit to the guy upstairs. What does it mean? You might be tempted to go fishing. The Bible says, Peter said, I'm going fishing. Well, wait a minute, Peter. Jesus said, I'm going I'm to take you out of that boat. You've been fishing for fish, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I got work for you to do. But Peter said, I'm going back. I'm going fishing. Why do we do that? Maybe we think we're far enough. I'm okay now. I've come far enough. Okay, I believe, preacher. Don't hound me anymore. Don't push me any further. Maybe we think we're strong enough to resist the temptation we dealt with back there. I'm strong enough. You know, I've come this far. I can deal with it. We uh, uh, overestimate our ability to resist temptation, and we underestimate God's power in us, but we overestimate our ability to resist, don't we? Maybe we've come a long way, and we say, this is enough, and we exchange the thrill of the climb for the comfort of the camp. Maybe it's because it's all we know. You know, we might say, this is just who I am. I'm not a rock. I'm a pebble. Don't count on me. But Jesus said, don't even look back. He said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Peter looked back. Peter went back. He went fishing. He did what his old ways told him to do. And you know what he caught that night? How many of you remember what the Bible says? He caught nothing. And let me tell you, that's exactly what the world would do to you and to me It'll call us back. It'll tempt us with pleasures. It'll, it'll, it'll offer everything, and it'll deliver nothing. It'll deliver nothing. And one day you'll wake up empty, and you'll realize, I chose the wrong path. And it's time to repent and come back home. Now, the third thing I want to say here today that might happen to you that happened to Peter is your love will be tested. I think your love will be tested. Peter's love was tested. I attended the Taze Valley service last night, and one of our uh, leaders down there said, I'd never heard that about that exchange between Peter and Jesus. And I said, oh, I assumed everybody knew this, so maybe I better explain what was going on here in this conversation Jesus had with Peter when Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I don't know if you know this, but indulge me for a minute. Let me explain the conversation here. You know, in, in some languages, there are several words where English might have one word, and the word love is one of those words. So we use the word love for I love Jesus, but we also say I love ice cream. Uh, and, you know, anything in between, I love puppies. So there's different words for the word love. In Greek, there's at least four words probably five. Uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's the erotic kind of love, that's eros, that's uh, the intimate love, and there's uh, storge, which is kind of a family love, you know, I love those who are like me. Then there's a love called phileo, which is a friendly love. It's, uh, you know, it's a deep love, but it's, you know, it's a friendship level. It's like two guys or two girls, you know, really close together, and they do things together then, of course, there's agape love, and that's the unconditional godly love. And what's going on in this conversation is Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? 
And uh, Peter answers with a different word. He says, yeah, Lord, I really phileo you. I really, I really, really like you. I mean, I'm fond of you. We're buds. Now, guys, some advice here. If your sweetheart snuggles up to you and says, honey, do you love me? Don't say, yeah, we're buds. I really like you. That's not going to help you a whole lot. Jesus asked him a second time and said, do you agape me? Peter said, yeah, Lord, I think Peter at this point was trying to avoid the conversation, maybe engage somebody else here, because Jesus is kind of getting serious here, you know, looking in. And uh, Peter said, yeah, Lord, uh, you know that I phileo you. Jesus is talking about an unconditional love here, but Peter's responding with, uh, you know, a strong brotherly love. It's like, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'll die for you. It's like the girl asked her boyfriend, uh, honey, is your, uh, is your love strong enough that you would die for me? And he said, no, mine is an undying love. You guys are listening. I don't know about folks over here. <clears throat> the third time Jesus asked him, he said, uh, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? You really, really love me, like me? And Peter answered, the Bible says he was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time. Why was he grieved? A couple of things could be going on here. In the very beginning, Jesus said, do you love me more than these? And scholars aren't sure yet what the more than these was referring to. Maybe since he had just come from the, the, the lake, more than these, it was these fish and these nets and these boats and these Uh, tackle, you know, the things that you're using to fish, your old life. Do you love me more than your old life? Because you just went back to your old life, but you you told me you love me. So do you love me more than these things? Because listen, if you love, if you love these things more than you love me, it's okay. Just go. You know, Jesus never forced anybody to follow him or to stay with him. John 6, 66, and that's why I remember this. Jesus had just talked about his blood and his body. And John 6, 66 says, many of his disciples decided that was too much for them and they left. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you guys want to go too? I mean, now's your opportunity. You can get out now. You want to leave too? It was Peter that spoke up and said, Lord, to whom? Would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Maybe Jesus was saying, Simon, do you love me more than these? Because you told me you did, but you showed me that you didn't. You know, your love's going to be tested. You got stuff in your life. You got things. You got pursuits and loves and, and, uh, and, you know, possessions and all sorts of things that the Lord may be asking you, do you love those things more than you love me? Some scholars believe that he may have been referring to the other disciples. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than they love me, more than these guys love me? Because you're the one who said you'd die for me. Then you denied me. Maybe you're the one who should be falling down here and repenting. These guys stayed as true as they could, but you, you stepped out there and then you dropped the ball. So we're not sure what more than these was referring to, but this interchange went on, and the Bible says the third time 
Peter was grieved. Now, you know what I think happened here? I think Peter was kind of caught up. I think there was talking going on around the fire there, the breakfast fire, and I think they were joking and talking. They're happy the Lord's back. You know, he's, he's alive. Like he said, he looks like a million bucks. He's not injured, uh, you know, in any way that would stop him from being here. And I think finally, uh, when he engages Peter and he says the third time, I think Peter said, oh, I see what you did there, Lord. I see what you did there. I denied you three times. You asked me three times. I I see that. And it breaks my heart to know that you reminded me of this. But again, don't read too much into that. That's just my interpretation I think of what happened, but I think what Jesus was doing was saying, look, Simon, I'm doing this for your good in front of these guys. You denied me three times. I want them to see that three times, I want you to know we got something going here. Even if it's not everything I want it to be yet, even if you're not really ready to die for me, even if your love isn't really unconditional, we got something going here. I can work with that. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. We can do something. And you know what? That's a love test. It's a love test that you're going to go through and then I'm going to go through. Do you love me? Do you just really like me? You're fond of me? Are you just kind of a fan, you know, once a week, once a month, once a year fan of mine? Or uh, are you all in? Are you with me? You know, when uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted in ancient uh, Rome in Pompeii, it happened so fast that It caught, the lava caught animals and people running from the scene. And today when they do archaeological digs, they find cavities of of space in that dirt, in that lava of uh, shaped like humans and animals. And some of the humans are running and some are, you know, they're crawling or whatever, but they, they find these cavities and uh, it, it is, it, it is said that they found this this, uh, in front of the governor's house where the governor used to live, they found this, this cavity of this soldier standing. And it inspired the poet to write these words. The test of a man's devotion will surely come one day. He loves God most who is at his post when others run away. Where's he going to find you? The resurrection really happened. Now what? Would you stand with me and let's pray and close this service. Lord God, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you, God, for loving us even when we fail you, even when we deny you, even when we chase the things of our life. Lord, give us grace. Restore us. Restore to us the joy of our salvation, your salvation in us. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place inspired to share this message and to live this message every day of our lives. Thank you so much for the living Christ. It's in his powerful name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.